Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. As China's military capabilities grow, the discussion of the U.S. posture in the Pacific often returns to what kind and size of force the U.S. needs to deter or possibly confront the Chinese Navy. If China were to launch an attack on Taiwan, how do the U.S. and Chinese naval forces match up? To find out, we are speaking with Tom Sugar, adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. During his 25 years in the U.S. Navy as a submarine warfare officer, he served on both fast attack and ballistic missile submarines, including as commander of the attack sub USS Olympia from 2013 to 2016. He also served on the joint staff as the principal officer responsible for nuclear strike planning, as well as in the Defense Department's Office of Net Assessment. Tom Sugar, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Let's start with what might seem like a simple question. How big is the Chinese Navy compared to uh, the U.S. forces in the region? And how is that question made more complicated because of the deep integration between Chinese military and civilian shipbuilding? Yeah, so there's the answer to that question, as with any question worth asking, I would say, is it, it depends. And it depends a lot on how you want to measure the size of the navies and also how you how you want to consider what's available for use. So if you want to talk about how to measure uh, the size of the navies, you know, people have, I'm sure people have heard or seen headlines that say, you know, the Chinese Navy is now larger than the, PL, than the U.S. Navy is. And that is true from a hull number perspective in that the actual number of ships that the PLA Navy possesses is larger than the, you know, worldwide, uh, the entire U.S. Navy in terms of the number of hulls. Um, what is not true is the number in terms of the tonnage, total tonnage of the ships in the various, in the two different navies. And the U.S. Navy is still quite a bit larger in terms of total tonnage, just reflecting the fact that on a historical basis, at least, U.S. Navy ships are on average much larger than their uh, PLA Navy, uh, than the, the ships the PLA Navy has been building. And, you know, think here of the 11 U.S. You know, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers that are about 100,000 tons apiece versus most of China's ships in the past have been frigates, destroyers, you know, ships that are on the order of five, seven, ten thousand 10,000 tons. Um, so the U.S. Navy still has a significant tonnage advantage, but that advantage is narrowing. Uh, when I've crunched the numbers for the last decade or so of um, PLA Navy building versus U.S. Navy shipbuilding in terms of both numbers and tonnage. Obviously, the PLA Navy, again, has hugely outbuilt the U.S. Navy in terms of the hull count, but has also outbuilt the U.S. Navy in terms of sheer tonnage over the last decade. Um, so they are catching up. I mean, having outbuilt the U.S. Navy by a tonnage basis by a fair amount uh, over that last decade. Um, so that gap is narrowing. Now, the other thing we have to remember is that the PLA Navy is almost entirely concentrated within the region in the Western Pacific, whereas right. the U.S. Navy, while it does have a 60-40 split, so to speak, in terms of a little bit more of a Pacific focus, it does have global responsibilities. Now, to be sure, if well, a, and only a third of our fleet is really at sea, you know, on station at, at, at one time, we're rotating those. Yeah, I mean, for, for sure, the PLA Navy massively outnumbers by any measure the um, the U.S. Navy ships that are deployed at any given time in the Western Pacific on a routine basis. Um, now, obviously, if World War III were to break out over Taiwan, the U.S. Navy would send almost the entire almost the entire Navy, I imagine, would, would be heading its way uh, towards the region. Um, uh, of course, except for those ships that are in long enough maintenance availabilities, they, they just can't get out there. Um, so 
So that would there would be, I'm sure, a great level of concentration there in the region. Uh, but to be sure, the PLA Navy is growing by leaps and bounds. The other thing I would say is that when you look at that average ship size, uh, in my analysis over time over the last decade, where in the first part of the last decade, the, the PLA Navy was, as was historically true, the average ship uh, you know, per ship tonnage was much smaller than the U.S. Navy. That has actually not changed over the last recent, most recent years. Uh, the PLA Navy is essentially built, their average ship is essentially the same size as the average ship the U.S. Navy is building in that they are building aircraft carriers now. They are building Ren High class cruisers that are larger than any, any service combatant under construction for the U.S. Navy right now. Um, so that gap in terms of average ship size has gone away in terms of new construction. Uh, so I, I don't expect it to see it continue that way in the future. So one of the other issues that that really fascinates me is this this kind of uh, civilian military, the PLAN versus you know when when there's civilian ships that are being built, especially ferries. And this this brings us to kind of the next question in just a second. But describe what that relationship is and and how civilian ships really are required to build to a military standard. So it's a, you know even just looking at what is official Chinese defense spending. Uh, gets to be a little complicated. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of different levels you can look at it from. Uh, at the most broad level, you know, China. Well, so let, let's be clear. <laughs> the way that, the way that China works, obviously, the CCP can essentially have Chinese companies even without a law in place. You know, right. China is run by as a matter of power. Uh, even without a law in place, the CCP could order basically anybody in China to do anything. So they they could, they could have civilian shipping. Uh, do you know? I bet they're back and call no matter what. But and, but specifically, China passed uh, national defense transportation law uh, and other you know mobilization laws over the recent decade um, that make it a matter of Chinese law that their ships shipping be available for military use. That it be built to military standards where required. Um, Chinese the Chinese ferries in particular um, are absolutely built to dual military civil standards. Um, they are built at, to the specification of the PLA Navy, which I'm sure, not necessarily PLA Navy, but the PLA, um, which I'm sure increases the cost of those vessels. You know, where does that fit in the Chinese defense budget? Who knows? Uh, is it in there at all in terms of any official numbers? I doubt it. Um, those ferry companies are state-owned enterprises. They are an apparatus of the Communist Party. Uh, it's one interesting thing to look at with some of these Chinese state-owned enterprises is you can look at the English language version of the company websites, and it's pretty anodyne, typical stuff. You know, here, here's the here's the the, the uh, chairman, here's the um, uh, you know here's the vice president, you got a chairman of the board, etc. It looks pretty normal. If you flip over and look at the Chinese language version, but translated into English, you can see sometimes their titles where the president is also the party secretary and the company news has got all kinds of stuff about communist party, this and that. Um, so right. they're definitely organs of the party. You can really see that in any case, um, those vessels are built to dual civil military standards. Um, we've seen display models of how they would be set up in, in case of military use. You'd have things like temporary firefighting and damage control equipment brought on board. You'd have temporary birthing facilities for the troops that are on board. Um, so they are ready to go in terms of uh, conversion. They are also practicing using them on a regular basis to do these exercises. Right. So, um, that, so that, is, that brings us to um, recently on Twitter, you've been kind of uh, reporting on the movements of these Ohio Chinese ferries. Talk about what were you seeing and, and why does that matter? So I use uh, AIS, you know, marine traffic, and I have a I use I have a, a fleet set up where I track the um, 
the, the, sh- the ships that I know are part of organized. These are ferry companies that are actually organized uh, units of the PLA Maritime Militia or the People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia. Uh, so they are they are known to be uh, you know, at the beck and call of the PLA and regularly used by them. Um, so I see immediately when they're off, because the, it's very obvious when they're off of their normal routes. And normally, normally there's two major ferry routes in China. There's one across the Yellow Sea and there's one uh, across from the mainland to Hainan Island. And it's very, it's quickly obvious when those ships are, you know, a thousand miles from home, they're obviously not doing commercial ferry operations anymore. So it's easy to zoom in and see uh, what are they up to. So yes, most recently I saw, I think it was six of them um, that were well south of their normal ferry routes. This is the kind of usual time of year where they do these exercises with ferries over the last few years where they practice landing exercises. So I don't have the imagery to tell you exactly, exactly what they were doing, but on several instances, I saw them in, you know, loading and unloading, I assume loading and unloading in places that are clearly not ferry terminals. It's prop that's the typical kind of places where they will use them to practice loading right. and unloading military equipment and vehicles. Uh, and then also anchored off of what looked like the typical kind of beaches they use to practice landing exercises. So I'm, I can tell you with pretty, pretty great certainty that that's what they were doing was practicing uh, amphibious assaults. The the Navy's large scale exercise was just, uh, I guess that was August. And is the timing that coincide with that for any reason? Or is that, is that, is that a, just a coincidence? Is that just a good time to be at sea in that part of the world or, uh, or is it a response? Coincidence. I think that's probably a coincidence. I mean, these exercises, the timing is consistent with the time of year that we've seen them in the past. Um, so no real surprise to see that they're out doing it uh, at this at that timeline. So let's talk about carriers. Uh, the mm-hmm. Chinese Navy has uh, made huge leaps and bounds, uh, mostly, at least initially, by acquiring uh, Soviet class vessels. And even I, back in the eighties, the there was the HMAS Melbourne, which was an Australian carrier that they was sold for scrap, but they left the catapults intact. <laughs> um, mm. and of course the Chinese, you know, were reverse engineering that for they, their capabilities. They, they've got these kind of three classes of carriers, uh, now, um, talk about how you assess that, uh, their capabilities in terms of the carriers. Well, I think they're a long way, prob- probably from uh, the capability on, on an individual ship basis. They're a long way yet from the capability that U.S. carriers have. Um, the uh, uh, the first two carriers that they have, you know, one is an ex-Soviet uh, carrier, much smaller than right. uh, than the U.S. carriers. I think about forty-five thousand ton carrier. Right. Um, That's the Liaoning. The Liaoning, yeah. and then and then the home. Then they then they built a copy of it uh, called. With some improvements, I'm sure, mm-hmm. uh, called the Shandong, right. um, but also much smaller than a normal U.S. carrier. Doesn't have catapults, um, so the aircraft on board would have relatively limited payload compared to a catapult launched. And now we have the Fujian, which is their first entirely new design, full size catapult launch. The catapults are, uh, we believe, they're electromagnetic catapults, um, so a little different than the ones on. Uh, they didn't reverse engineer those. Those are, those are uh, homegrown. Uh, you know, those are. That's a that's a new thing. Yeah. Um, well, of course, who knows? Maybe they got maybe they built them using stolen plans. They got they got via cyber intrusion somewhere. But who knows? Um, in any case, now that is a full size carrier. It is a little smaller than uh, it looks like than the U.S. Uh, nuclear carrier. So probably eighty five thousand tons instead of more like a hundred. Um, but still full full size, close to close to a Ford, but not. Yeah. Quite, so yeah. full size catapult launch, arrest resting landing uh, carrier. 
Um, you know, is that something they're going to use to go out and challenge the U.S. Navy in the next few years? I don't think so. Uh, in terms of, they're not going to you know wander out in the Central Pacific and fight World War II over again. Um, you know, in the way in, in terms of open uh, carrier combat, because they would lose. But they don't have to. They don't have to do that to necessarily to achieve their, you know, their geopolitical goals. Number one being to get control of Taiwan. Um, for the first time since actually Taiwan's never been part of the PRC, but never mind that. Um, right. So, uh, so I see that carrier role you know, over time. Once I expect them to continue building them, uh, no reason to think they'll stop. I have not seen any indications that they have yet started building a second full size carrier. It's something I keep an eye out for on uh, you know Google Earth and whatnot. But right. Haven't seen that yet, uh, but I would expect to see over time that they will build more of them. Right. Um, but what we have to remember is that those. The Chinese Navy is has no plan to fight alone in the Western Pacific. You have to remember that overshadowing all naval operations in the Western Pacific is the firepower of the PLA Rocket Force. Um, so China has a uniquely a very asymmetric advantage here in that where we're just kind of starting to play with um, using long-range missiles to hit um, uh, surface ships from land. They have a you know they have hundreds of intermediate range and medium range ballistic missiles, right. um, most of which can be configured for anti-ship role. Uh, and according to, you know, the Pacific command commander him, or the uh, Pacific fleet commander himself, those missiles appear to work uh, and they do have the ability to hit moving targets at sea. So, so we can never forget that they have that on-call firepower uh, all, all across the Western Pacific, which is a pretty unique advantage. So when we talk about how much tonnage they have, well, how many tons is that worth? Because um, it is definitely a major factor at sea, right? Well, and you uh, you have all of these fortified islands that have been built up that are unsinkable little missile frigates, basically, or or, or you know mini carriers for launching short range capability. I mean, talk, how do you think about that that capability? Not just within, uh, I mean, the, the the range even just within the shore is is close enough that they they can have shore based missile forces, but having those islands is a, is a huge deal, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think so. And I, I wrote about that way back in 2016, uh, back when there were uh, generally a lot of people were pretty dismissive of the of the impact of those island, the, the big three at Gollum, Subi Reef, Fiery Cross and uh, Mischief Reef. People were fairly some people were fairly dismissive, of, including the Pacific Command commander um, in public were fairly dismissive of the, of the utility of those uh, airfields in they they claiming them was a, kind of theatrics, like that it was it was simply putting down a flag and that was it. it was, well, it was just a- more that um, more that they while those air bases might be useful for um, kind of gray zone operations, that they would be of limited impact uh, in a in a shooting war with the United States. That they would that they were not militarily significant. And right, I took right. a close look at them and I thought, I mean, they look like full size air bases to me. So their military significance is. Whatever full size air bases would have, you know, they are they are just as big as any mainland uh, fighter base. They have um, all plenty of hangars. They have plenty of munition storage. They are very heavily defended uh, in terms of their air defenses. Um, uh, they have hardened fuel tanks. I mean, they've done a better job hardening their ba- those bases than I, I would think we have at any of our bases in the Western Pacific. So, so they are they are full size air bases, no more, no less. So, that, and that's what their that's where their significance lies. I would say. But what that put means with the island bases and just the fact that it's a home game for for China 
and that they have bases all along their coastline, uh, many of which have been very heavily hardened in the recent uh, recent years, and some brand new bases. What that tells me is that in terms of China trying to seize air, naval dominance within the first island chain, so within the you know the, the inland the close close aboard seas, the East China Sea, South China Sea. That China can basically do that without the large ships of the PLA Navy. That if you look at all the different aspects of sea power that they would need to bring to bear, so anti-surface capability, anti-submarine capability, and anti-air capability, that almost all of that can be mostly can be mostly conducted from land uh, within those within the first island chain. So the air base, so anti-air capability can come from land-based aircraft. Your anti-surface capability can come from the PLA rocket force and coastal defense cruise missiles. Uh, and strike aircraft operating from land. Again, China also operates several regiments of dedicated long-range uh, anti-ship bombers. The U.S. doesn't have anything like that. Uh, you know, we have the Air Force. You know, likes to play around sometimes with the you know we uh, with the LRASM, and they've they've done some work with that. But China has dedicated you know multiple regiments of, of dedicated anti-ship bombers. So, with those land-based aircraft and land-based missiles, and the the one remaining element. They need to provide is anti-submarine warfare. Again, they now have land-based uh, long-range fixed-wing aircraft, and they also have a large force of um, seemingly pretty capable uh, anti-submarine frigates and corvettes. You know, they have seventy. Actually, they they got rid of the first twenty-two, so they have fifty-eight or forty-eight um, Type fifty-six corvettes that have that have tow to ray sonars, they have uh, anti-submarine, they can, they can land a helicopter, they've got torpedoes and, and missile rocket launchers. Um, so them plus their Type 54 frigates, which they have brand new ones in construction, they can provide that ASW capability within the first island chain using those small ships. So what that means is that the carriers and the big Ren High cruisers and the big destroyers, those could all be for away game stuff, um, which I think is a unique uh, place they put themselves in terms of their the building up that land-based capability in their region that appears to be pretty capable. So do you feel like this is kind of a battle of Yetland moment where old ideas about, I mean, there has not been a major, you know, world war two size sea battle, you know, uh, in, in a long time. And, but I think that our, our concepts of what's important in terms of, uh, Navy versus Navy, engagement are still fixed in a very, you, you know, in, in the past century, in, in essence. And I mean, definitely there is a big debate going on about littoral versus drones versus carriers versus, you know, missile forces, anti-missile forces. Uh, how do you understand the balance of forces, the overall balance of forces, where our budgetary uh uh, emphasis is, uh, you know, are we putting our eggs in a couple different baskets? Are we putting them all in, in one basket? Um, how do you see the direction of the U.S. Navy going versus what China's overall strategy in terms of uh, it, what seems like they're not – I mean, they, they are trying to compete on the carrier – on a carrier level to a certain extent, but they're not – building, you know, U.S. sized carrier groups to dominate the open sea. They're, like you said, I mean, they're, they're, they really have a much more kind of integrated missile forces, uh, you know, smaller ship as well as, you know, sea-based anti-sub, anti-ship platforms. How do you see the the emphasis of each Navy? And is is that really matching the direction of, of technology? So I think the first, the first, 
you know, big flick bottom line thing I would say in terms of eggs and baskets isn't so much that we're not putting eggs in the wrong baskets. It's that we don't have enough eggs. We're just not, <laughs> we're just not spending enough. Right. We are not resourcing our naval forces to what the degree required to, to, to stand up to over the long term, stand up to what will be the first real challenger to democratic Western capitalist oriented sea power in hundreds of years. I mean, the, the, we have, you know, the Western nations have, uh, whether starting with the Dutch and then the British and then the U S have over the vast majority of the world's surface maintained naval supremacy for since the 17th century, basically. Um, so that, and that to me underpins the modern global integrated and hopefully more democratic world uh, that we see now today. It, it, it underpins all that. China is challenging that. I mean, so China, China has said clearly in its um, defense goals that it that it wants the ability to um, uh, to be able to defend its sea lines of communication. Uh, so, and, and that, there should be no surprise there. China is the world's greatest maritime trading nation. They are the world's actually the biggest trading nation in the history of humanity. Um, they are the premier maritime power in the world by every measure, essentially, except for. Uh, except for sheer naval tonnage, as we discussed. So they have the world's largest Coast Guard. They have the world's largest fishing fleets. They are the world's largest shipbuilders, again, in the history of humanity. They have, I think the Greeks own a few more ships than they do, uh, but not by much. And the, and the, and they're closing there. So, so when you see that, it makes sense that with those overseas interests, with that huge trading fleet, that China would naturally build the premier naval power to go with it. So the U.S. I think the U.S. to some degree is running on, you know, a lot of leftovers, uh, and we are just not uh, from a big flick perspective. Whether you send it, whether you're spending the money on munitions or readiness or building new ships, and we're just not resourcing what it takes to face that challenge. I think so. That's the first problem. Now, where do you put it? I mean, there are lots of good questions. I am very much in favor of to the hilt using uh, maximizing the potential of uncrewed systems. I'd be willing to be a, probably a bit more aggressive than DOD policy would allow right now in terms of uh, lethal autonomous weapons, at least in, the, in, in their use at sea and in the air. Um, and, you know, DOD is moving in that direction, but we have to remember that if you look at the numbers and how much of our resources are going to it, as much as we talk about these un, uncrewed systems, it's still single-digit percentages of of the of the Navy's budget, I believe, that are going to procurement of those systems. Now, it's still early days; we're still they're still in development, so that can be expected to some degree. But let's not have any illusions of that that that's where most of our money is going. And, and it feels like, at least in the think tank world, we're coming to some sort of tipping point. I'm, you know, both in kind of in the civilian world, there's a big you know shift about the conversation about AI. But it, it feels like, I mean, with the replicator program, rep replicator initiative, and stuff like that. Uh, the the money isn't necessarily there, but it does feel like the conversation's shifting a bit in terms of moving to autonomous systems. Yep, I mean the conversation's shifting. There's lots of talk about it, but I mean the resources. Um, you know, there's also there's also skepticism. You know, I know Congress has has kind of uh, slowed down some of the Navy's programs for perhaps what they see as a lack of uh, clarity of uh, you know their concepts of operations and the, and that there's risk there. Sure, there's risk there, but I think the risk in not pushing hard on these systems. Um, uh, is is even greater. Uh, but that being said, we can't count on 
the promise of potential uncrewed capabilities, um, you know, that's not proven yet. And I want to make sure that we can, de- especially first, deter China, right, uh, and then, if necessary, defeat China with the capabilities that we know work uh, in terms of the, you know, regular old leg- legacy, so to speak, um, naval platforms. If we can't do that, uh, you know, I don't want everything to count on the promise of of systems that have a lot of question marks there. So, so what I wouldn't want to see is for us to pull back to not to not resource the legacy platforms we have to the degree we need to, that we know we'll be able to win uh and again first deter you know on the promise of something that may or may not deliver which right. again we do need to push for so again that, that's where i see just there's just not not enough resources in general for a nation that's serious about the first real challenge to uh naval supremacy and since world war ii basically um so uh, so i worry about that uh we also can't kid ourselves that you know, quadcopters are going to save the day. Uh, you know, this is not Ukraine. <laughs> right. right. Uh, open naval combat at sea is entirely different than land combat. Those little quadcopters only go so far. Uh, they only are only so big. They can only do so much. You're also not going to win a naval battle in open ocean with the converted jet skis like the Ukrainians are, you know, they're hitting their ports. Uh, the Black Sea is a much, much smaller place uh, than the Western Pacific. Um, so again, we, we, uh, we shouldn't risk, uh, learning the long, wrong lessons from, uh, from Ukraine. I mean, drones, absolutely. I'm all, I'm all in favor of drones. I think they're going to be important. Uh, but we got to remember that in terms of open ocean capabilities, the Navy, the Navy has been dealing with drones for decades now. We called them cruise missiles. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, uh, uh an AS, a Russian AS4, you know, it's basically a Mach 3, 300 mile drone with attitude. Uh, and the Navy's been dealing with that sort of threat for generations, um, so maybe not quite as much change there as in other as, as on land. We've seen big changes in the posture of our allies in the region, especially Korea and Japan, towards expanding their naval naval capabilities as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taiwan just launched a submarine, a, a diesel electric sub. Talk about how the other allies in the region complement the forces that we have there. So I think there's a decent, um, decent complementarity, I guess, if you call it, uh, between our allies and the capabilities we provide. Um, the Japanese have a very effective, uh, or seems to be very likely to be effective, um, diesel submarine force um, that work could work nicely um, to, uh, you know, whereas the you know U.S. nuclear submarines can kind of range far and wide with their better mobility. Um, Chinese or Japanese diesel submarines in the event of a conflict, you know, could could be very effective in in, in the, those inland seas um, or those uh, China's near seas. Uh, with their very, you know, they're very quiet, they're very stealthy, um, and, and they maintain them in a, a appears to be great great uh, uh, physical shape. Um, so that's good. Um, I think again, it's still a question of not enough. You know, I'd like to see more. Uh, but you know, Japan is apparent. You know, appears to be dramatically increasing its defense spending uh, from what was a clearly insufficient one percent to at least maybe around two percent of GDP. I'd still like to see more, given the, given the threat from China. Um, Taiwan, yep, building the launch their first submarine. Going to be very interesting to see how that pans out. It's certainly an impressive accomplishment to develop an indigenous submarine capability if it is actually a, a capable submarine. Uh, only a handful of countries on the planet can do that sort of thing. So, so that's good to see. Um, I think that's, I think the, the Taiwanese submarine is a decent place to put their resources uh, in terms of capabilities that Taiwan, I think ought to be focusing on. I'd be focusing on capabilities that are 
um, that are dispersible, dispersed or dispersible, that don't require a lot of support from fixed facilities and don't require much in the way of communications. Because we know those are the things that you know, China is likely to go after first in a, in a strike on Taiwan is all, you know, all the important fixed facilities like runways and command centers um, and logistical facilities. So submarines are pretty good in that regard. They don't need a lot of support out at sea. Um, they don't need a lot of communications. And if you at least if you see the attack coming and you can get them out to sea, they're pretty survivable. Um, so that seems like a relatively smart place to put their money as a as compared to, say, F-16 fighters, which are likely to get whack the first day of the war uh, by the PLA rocket force. So uh, so that seems like a sensible way to spend their money. Again, I'd, I'd like to just see them spend more. Um, you know, Taiwan is spending, even with the major increases in recent years, like two and a half percent of GDP. You know, we spend well, well over that number uh, on our own defense and we don't have China a hundred miles away. Right. Um, that and, and 20 times our size. So that does not seem to be a level of spending to me commensurate with a, uh, uh, with a nation that is under the mortal threat that they are from a huge neighbor who routinely threatens them with invasion. Um, so I would, I would, I'd, I'd like, I'd like to see them, you know, kick in a bit harder. Um, I think in terms of maritime capabilities, I do look to the Taiwan or I'm sorry, uh, South Korea and Japan's still extant, uh, very significant and well-run shipyards. Um, the United States has essentially no commercial shipbuilding anymore. Um, if you look at the numbers, China built something like 24 million tons of commercial shipping uh, in last year, and the U.S. built 70,000 tons. So, I mean, literally hundreds of times larger than the U.S. shipbuilding industry is China's commercial shipbuilding. And the way that that works out uh, for production is that I think it significantly reduces the cost uh, to the PLA Navy of their vessels. So I'd be willing to bet that they're you know, they're building their ships at half the price of uh, what the U.S. Navy is. Um, so we have these huge. Well, and just uh, simple you know, industrial capacity to, I mean, to to gear up if, yeah. if the conflict started. Um, oh, that's not even to bring in the idea of repairs. I mean, the U.S. Navy is already way behind on maintenance uh, just in peacetime. Uh, you know, if you bring wartime, you know, battle damage into the equation, you know, I just really worry about that. Whereas China has these huge shipyards. Um, that could be used to repair their vessels. They, and those sh- it's not like those shipyards don't, those shipyards already work uh, to repair their vessels. I just saw imagery of, in the recent years, I've seen imagery of of um, uh, older Chinese destroyers back in the shipyard getting fixed up. So we know that they're in that business as well. And the scale of the, the, scale of the industry just dwarfs anything in the United States, which is again, where I think our our allies could be uh, very helpful. So South Korea and Japan do still have large and capable ship commercial shipbuilding industries. And if we are not ready to, to use those capabilities in a conflict, either to repair or to produce, um, that would just be negligent to me to not, to not have a plan in place to do that. When you talk about not being ready, what is your mental timeline? We've got Taiwan obviously is on a very different timeline. Australia, we had this AUKUS deal. I mean, they, they, you know, bought three Virginia class, but you know, this, this, their new sub is going to be launched in what, 2040. I mean, so I think the the players in the, in the region have very, very different ideas. Uh, obviously no one knows really what China's real timeline is, but uh, they may be <laughs> assessing that year to year. But when you think about the potential for a conflict, 
what is your mental timeline for being ready? So I, I do worry the most about the late 2020s. Uh, I mean, well, well before we had word from the CIA director of Bill Burns that, that Xi Jinping had ordered the PLA to be ready to take on Taiwan in 2027. But even before that, you know, I said in testimony that I, I was worried that the late 2020s would be a kind of a period of significant danger. There's a number of factors that are coming into play there. <clears throat> so one is, um, you know, we have a wave of retirement of late Cold War or just after Cold War era uh, U.S. Um, naval platforms, so whether it's cruisers or, or the last of our Los Angeles-class submarines, um, those are going away in that time frame. Uh, we have the U.S. Navy's uh, four SSGNs, so our guided missile submarines. So these are converted Ohio-class ballistic missile submarines. They can carry 150-plus Tomahawk cruise missiles, each one of those ships. There's four of them. And they are all being retired around 2025, 2026, 2027, uh, because they've reached the end of their service life. With nothing, with nothing huge, to replace them, really. Yeah, there's no. I mean, there's new Virginia class submarines under production, but they don't. They just don't carry that many missiles. And and as it is, that production rate. You know, there's been plenty of stuff in the news about how the production rate, which is supposed to be two boats a year, is nowhere close to that. It's more like 1.5 or 1.2 or something like that. Um, so the rate of rate of replacement is just not there. So as a result, you have. In that time frame, when those uh, SSGNs are retired, it's just simple math to figure out that about 40% of the U.S. Navy's submarine-launched uh, cruise missile uh, vertical launch um, cell capacity is going away in a matter of years. And I think that that's some of the cruise, uh, some of the strike capability that the PLA probably worries about the most because it's the ones that can't stop from getting close to China, uh, unlike the surface ships. So. Um, so you got that. You've got uh, the Air Force keeps getting smaller and smaller. They just not aren't buying enough fighters to replace the ones that are being retired. Um, and then you've got you know China's capabilities continue growing, so they'll continue growing through that 2028 timeline. Um, there doesn't seem to be as the Chinese economy slows, their defense spending doesn't seem to be slowing in the same way. Um, so they're, they're going to continue to build capability. And then some of the best. Uh, as the U.S. has finally woken up to the China threat after years of being focused, you know, justifiably to some degree on the you know global war on terror, uh, it takes time to turn that ship around. And a lot of the best capabilities to bring to bear for a China fight, things like um, new new submarine launch capabilities, new new bombers, um, lo- you know, long range. Uh, uh, you know, drones or like the MQ, MQ-25s off of our carriers, uh, long-range missile capabilities. A lot of those capabilities aren't really coming online until, again, only in small, very small numbers in those late 2020s and then in larger numbers probably in the 2030s. Um, so I think there's a window there where um, China could see that they've got they've gotten where they need to be. U.S. Cold War era platforms have retired, so there's a bit of mass taken out of the U.S. force. And the new, really capable um, things that the U.S. is bring online just aren't haven't really reached our forces in sufficient numbers by that late 2020s period. So I really do worry about that time frame. I read on Twitter. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm for forgetting the name of the guy who said it, but America is a sea power that thinks it's a land power, and China is a land power that's trying to become a sea power. And I think what he meant by that was we center our forces around launching air forces. You know, we center our whole fleet structure around these carriers and that they that becomes really vulnerable in a way and that we aren't really engaging in 
in multiple classes of ships and uh, multiple classes of capabilities in in the way that a, a much more diverse navy. And so you know we we have these arguments on the hill about you know a three hundred ship navy or whatever. And, you know, is, are we getting enough hulls? And and what I'm hearing from you is really that it's so much more complicated than just the sheer number of ships that we have. It really is looking at at a much much more diverse force structure. Uh, I mean. Again, I'm, I'm trying to get at if if we were able to get some sort of consensus, which I know is probably you know never possible. But uh, you know, what would that what would that force? What would that ideal naval balance look like in in the region? And basically, what I'm hearing from you is more subs, more mis- missile capability. Yes, drones, but drones are never going to be the the answer to all our all our prayers. Um, we spend a lot on F-35s or, you know, air capability, but uh, I get the sense that that's not really going to be the determinant factor uh, early on in a conflict um, from you. Uh, I mean, how do you see that balance of air power versus uh, much more diverse surface or submarine assets? I mean, if you're looking at survivable air power in the region, in the first uh first portion of a conflict, it's going to have to be sea-based. I mean, China has, by my calculations, China has enough missiles uh, between the combination of the rocket ballistic ballistic missiles, the rocket force, the hypersonic weapons of the rocket force, plus rocket forces, cruise missiles, and air launch cruise missiles. I think they have enough enough missiles, by my calculations, to wreck every U.S. base in the region, uh, certainly within range of Taiwan, uh, and wreck every basically every aircraft on the ramp at those air, at those airfields so and then do it again a couple times probably um so i don't see survivable air power being you know working from uh air from the u.s air bases and anything like the current construct yes the air force has been working on what they call ace or agile combat uh, agile combat employment or i forget what it stands for anyways it's you know dispersed dispersal of aircraft but at least to the scale that I've seen it in public, it's nowhere near the scale that it would need to be to have any real impact on a, on a conflict. You know, you see occasional stories about, hey, four F-35s operated from operated from Tinian, for example. OK, great. China has like has like 90 airfields within the range of Taiwan. Um, so, you know, you're operating from a couple from Tinian and maybe a couple of Philippine airfields is not going to change the balance. Um, so. I just don't see the effort uh, for survival. I mean, what I would like to see to, to, to make me start to be a believer that air power from land is survivable in the region would be, all right, when, when I see U.S. fighters operating off Japanese highways or I see them regularly being operated from Japanese civilian airfields, and I mean lots of them, you know, to the point that the Chinese or the Japanese public is in a bit of an uproar, then I'll start to be convinced that we're doing something serious enough to offset the mortal threat to our air bases that that Chinese uh, strike power uh, has for the beginning phase of a conflict. So that to me, that leaves it mostly in the hands of um, sea-based air power. And that's where, uh, yeah, I mean, again, there's a threat from the, the rocket force. Their missiles are way longer range uh, than the, the range of U.S. Um, uh, carrier strike group aircraft, which has been documented. Uh, my, my friend Jerry Hendricks documented that very well in a report, um, I think almost a decade ago. Um, that range keeps shrinking. So I don't, so, you know, could we operate within range of those missiles? Maybe. I mean, I'm sure, obviously the, 
the uh, the U.S. Navy would be criminally neglectful if they weren't developing capabilities to uh, try to make those missiles not work or miss or not be able to get their fine targets. But then, but nevertheless, you are operating under that umbrella, and so things have changed there. Um, so there's going to be a challenge there for sure. Uh, in terms of the, you mentioned that I was interested in um, missile capability and, and capacity and drones. Uh, that's where those two things could come together nicely, and that. You could have in the form of unmanned surface vessels a reasonably, you know, if you've got a destroyer with a USV, a large, you know, good size USV that's basically a missile magazine tagging along, that seems like a pretty could be a useful capability for as a kind of a granular granular example. I mean, again, the real, the larger, the integration of drones beyond just you know the kind of classical Reaper or, or you know large airframe drones yeah. that the Americans think about is still, you know, it's in development, but it's not really actively deployed. You don't have like a swarm of sail fins, you know, coming towards a carrier or something like that. I mean, I I think that there's certainly a lot of potential for a whole new class of drones that are, you know, extensions of an air wing, you know, um, that, you know, soak up incoming missiles or soak up air defenses or, um, you know, that, that are essentially help overwhelm the anti-missile capability of of Chinese ships or the anti-attack capabilities of Chinese ships, but we're, you know, we're not, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. I've, I've, so the pitch, the pitch that I would make, and this is, this is an out there pitch, but it's one I made a few uh, in 2017, an article I wrote for for proceedings. Well, I I don't think that um, naval air, naval uncrewed air capability is really going to get where it needs to be. So we start to build carriers around uncrewed aircraft. Mm. Um, yeah. So like my pitch was build, build an, un, an aircraft carrier that is built specifically for uncrewed aircraft. Uh, because you could do things in a very different way than you do for manned aircraft. Uh, and I think there's a lot of efficiencies that can be gained there. I mean, imagine, for example, you know, a ship that could hurl aircraft into the air at, you know, 20 G's. Um, that could land on, you know, uncreated aircraft vertically on their tails, right. um, that could send them on one-way missions if they needed to, at double right. their normal rank, strike range, right. um, that could act as a lily pad that had aircraft that could stay aloft for well beyond the capability of a normal human. Um, so I, I, I see ways. I don't think that uncrewed, uncrewed combat capability is really going to get uh, where it needs to be until it is unshackled from all the all the historical liabilities that go along with manned aircraft. Right, and this is quite frankly where you get politics involved because I mean, mm-hmm. both within the military, within the Navy, and and you know, Marine Corps uh, Air Service, you know, they uh, they're very attached to putting human beings in planes. They, you know, rightfully so. There's a, there's a a big argument around that, but uh, when you treat robots like humans you make them a lot more expensive when you make robots disposable little things that you can throw a cloud of they become a lot cheaper i I think that's to me like one of the lessons obviously you know ukraine and taiwan are so different in terms of potential conflicts um but you know the the lesson to me from ukraine is just that no one really understood a the the rate of consumption of artillery shells, the rate of consumption of both sophisticated missiles and unsophisticated missiles, you know, and also the rate of consumption of you know civilian drone products. Uh, you know, they didn't care if they were jambable or if they were you know up to military specs in a large degree. They they were attritable. They were you know that 
it was a lot of them. And, you know, the more of something there is, the harder it is to defend against. That is absolutely true. Let's close talking about Ukraine a little bit. I mean, obviously, two real questions. You know, one is, what are the lessons for you from the current conflict in Ukraine, both from a military perspective? And then the second question is really, we've got a Republican Party that is gone from being ambivalent about Ukraine to being explicitly against funding Ukraine in its defense against the Russian invasion. How do you see the military lessons so far? of the war in Ukraine uh, as applicable to this Chinese-Taiwan potential conflict? And then the second question is really a political question about what happens if Ukraine loses? So first, I'm going to duck the political question. So I, <laughs> I, I generally uh, try to stay away from partisan discussions of partisan politics. So I'm just gonna, first, let's focus on the military side. Uh, well, my other my other ducking that I will do is that I am not a Russia expert uh, or, or a Ukraine expert. Uh, and I'm not a, I'm not really a general foreign policy guy. I'm, I'm a, I'm a analyst of the, I'm an analyst, military analyst, mostly focused on the U.S. China military balance. And so, you're our first submariner guest on Hot Watch, so don't. Yeah, you know, I know, don't, I, know don't, I do know a thing or two about <laughs> submarines and anti-submarine warfare. So, um, so what I, what I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna twist your question around, sure. and I'm gonna see what, what lessons do I think China might be learning from, uh, from Ukraine, and how, how could that apply to a. Um, you know, to a to a Taiwan conflict. So there there are plenty of articles that have been written on this question. Um, to me, I think the one that bears thinking about uh, the ones that bear the most thinking about are can cut a couple different ways. So one way to look at it is that you could say, well, look at look at um, uh, here's a negative example for Xi Jinping that Putin thought he would be able to take over this this smaller country. It turns out they were plucky and kept, and they kept fighting and he's not been able to do that. So that could be a caution against engaging uh, in, into a conflict like that. And oh, also at the same time, it managed to reunify uh, what was starting to become a, l- a little bit somewhat fractious uh, Europe and also caused them to increase the effort they're putting into uh, military affairs. So he could look at that and say that makes it a bad idea to potentially to invade Taiwan. OK, fine. But what we've also seen is that by Putin making some pretty mild nuclear threats, he managed to make it so that the you know no NATO forces are actually engaged in combat on behalf of of Ukraine. And we have to remember that I'm pretty sure that uh, if the U.S. if China tries to you know subsume Taiwan um, by direct military action, and the U.S. does not directly engage, only supplies. Uh, whatever it can get to Taiwan, that that is that Taiwan will fall. I mean, they just cannot. I don't think they can on their own militarily with just help through supplies. Uh, I don't think they can survive against the weight of the PLA. Um, so that model doesn't really work for defending Taiwan in terms of Ukraine. The other thing you have to remember is that Ukraine has land, has land borders. Um, and we've been able to supply weapons through those land borders. They're you know pretty much wide open. Uh, for us to send stuff in, that is not going to be true of Taiwan. Uh, so if you look at, and we don't have to guess at this, that the Chinese have told us this in open source, their open source strategic documents, uh, that when they talk about the details of a landing campaign, kind of step one is you isolate the island. You know, you you put in place, naval, you seize naval and air dominance, and you put in place a blockade to prevent resupply of the island. So we already know they're going to prevent that sort of resupply. So that's that's something that you can't look at and say, well, we'll be fine because we can supply them with weapons because we probably won't be able to. 
at least not at least not without engaging in direct again direct military action um, to force a way open through the through the Chinese uh, effort to isolate the island. Um, so, and then from Xi Jinping's perspective, I would also look and say that you know again I'm not a Russia expert, but I've read stuff by people who are. Um, you know, so Mike Kaufman had before the war started had a had a, had a really great. Um, uh, study that looked at what does Russian doctrine look like and what would it, what would a conflict that Russia launched look like? And, you know, if you read, read Russian doctrine, you would think what a lot of experts thought before the war started, that Russia would engage in a massive campaign, which kind of rhymes with some of what the PLA has said they will do in terms of striking across the breadth of Ukraine, um, paralyzing its military, paralyzing its command and control, you know, taking a sweet time to really take apart the Ukrainian military before it basically before it would take time to send its ground forces in until that task was completed, until the, the Ukrainian Air Force was destroyed, until its command and control networks were taken down, that they would do it that way. Well, that's not what happened. Um, you know, Putin apparently, I guess, got some bad advice from his intelligence experts who thought that the Ukrainians would basically just fold. And that didn't happen. Um, so he did not employ Russia's you know, developed military doctrine, which developed, which was developed over decades of thinking and experimenting, didn't do it. So one lesson I could see Xi Jinping taking away from that is, if you are going to do this kind of campaign, do what you plan to do, which to me would look like probably very large scale strikes, at least across Taiwan, and probably against US bases in Japan, and maybe even Japanese bases in Japan. Um, so that's, that's one thing I, that is a cautionary tale I, I would take from watching what's happened in Ukraine. Well, let's end it there for today. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Tom Sugart, thanks so much for joining us on Hot Wash. My pleasure, John. It's been a great chat. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.